Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Andrew Otasso needed a new god. His god needed to explain the absurdity he saw around Miami. It needed to address the beauty of the Everglades, the traffic in Brickell, the pervasiveness of New Yorkers and chisme, gossip. Only the divine could help explain the bliss of a croqueta. The traditional deities left him wanting. So Andrew, a humorist, made up his own. He wrote the Miami creation myth, and in it, a panoply of gods explained the Miami miasma. The Zeus of this very Miami world is the mighty Pachango, who breathes life into his children through a puff of his cigar smoke. His daughter, the goddess Maris Lacy's, begets the Everglades. Goddess Yamilet engenders croquetas, and a wayward wisp of smoke accidentally creates their foil, Achepe, the god of chisme. At least one lives at the center of the most holy place, Mount Trashmore. That tracks for Andrew. He's the one on your social media feeds picking trash out of the mangroves. He's removed more than 10 tons of trash from South Florida's mangrove forests. Even History Miami has a 35-pound bag of trash he carried at the Miami Marathon. When he isn't picking up trash, he's trash-talking Brickle in his comedy. He'll be reading excerpts from his new book on Saturday at the Villain Theater in Little Haiti. Here to talk us through his comedic and spiritual awakening is Andrew Otasso. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. That was an awesome intro. Well, I mean, I had so much great stuff to work with on that. <laughs> so the, the, I, what I, I really like about the book is that it doesn't have a foreword. It has a forewarning. Correct. Yes. <laughs> so why was that important? Um, I just needed to let everybody know what they were in for. Um, okay. Yeah, and it was obviously a play on words as well. <laughs> and like the the book is is uh, uh, tongue firmly in cheek. Yes, so to speak. very much so. Uh, and and my first thought at reading it was, how did you write 170 pages on this? <laughs> I don't know. I uh, I just have a lot of crazy stuff just jumbling about in my head, and um, I've been trying to. I always wanted to write about Miami in a creative sense. I've been writing satire for a long time, and I'd been writing essays and short stories about Miami. Um, but the Miami creation myth was my first consolidated attempt to write a dramatized, fictionalized version of Miami in um, just like a giant metaphor. Literally, my entire universe is just the county, Miami-Dade County, and at the Broward County line, there's a giant chasm and no one knows what's on the other side. It it's like the edge of the universe, Yeah, right? literally, because that's how we think here. That's It's like, oh my God, I have to go to Broward. Yes, you have to go to Broward. It's 40 minutes away. It's okay, but culturally, it's just this giant chasm between us and the rest of the United States. There is definitely a provinciality to it that says, uh, you know, crossing that that, that, metaf- that line is, uh, is, is physical and metaphorical. Yeah, and literally the rest of the United States to me is Broward. Like, I have no idea... <laughs> where Davy is, or Miramar, or Parkland, I really don't. It's yeah. just vaguely Broward. It might be Palm Beach. Yeah, well, yeah, we need to get we need uh, emails from the listeners now, which which will tell us exactly where everything is. Like, right. Uh, <laughs> so tell me, because um, the book you didn't write it obviously overnight. Like this is like a building up of of years of you writing right. pieces of it, right? Right, right. It's been a seven year process since wow. I yes since I wrote the first uh, the first chapter. And it's gone through many, many iterations. Um, it started off basically, so I'm Cuban-American. My parents were born on the island. Um, it started off very Cuban and very Caribbean-centric. Because um, that's, that's your world, your, exactly. your personal world. That's my background, correct. Right. 
and that's what I knew. And so it was written primarily in English and Spanish. Um, but I realized that if I wanted to write something called the Miami Creation Myth, and I wanted to feel, and I really do, I wanted, you know, as many different communities in Miami to feel represented in an authentic manner, I needed to bring in members of those communities to help me reshape those chapters. Um, so, you know, I reached out to friends and acquaintances in the Haitian American community, Jamaican community, um, Seminole, you name it, um, uh, Brazilian, and they helped me reshape those chapters. And many of them also acted in the audiobook, uh, which is still in production. But um, I have 25 actors involved in that production. That doesn't sound complicated at all. Oh my God, it's so <laughs> complicated. Um, especially, you know, having no background in this whatsoever, just winging it. Um, but it's been, it's good. I'm, I, obviously I, given the chance, it would have been great to just pump this out in a couple months and publish it. <laughs> but the seven years that it took to bring this all together, I think made it much better as a result. And, and one of the things that you say right in the foreword is like, hey, I'm a white Cuban-American guy, yeah. and I could have just written it in that voice. Mm -hmm. But you did something else, which is there's Spanglish, there's Haitian Creole, Portuguese, uh, Jamaican Patois, there's Miccosukee. Right. Um, tell me a little, a little bit about how you went about incorporating those things. Like, who are some of the folks that, right. that helped you create it? Right. So Cheyenne Kippenberger. Um, from, she is a member of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. She's also amazing. She uh, was Miss Seminole USA and Miss Indian World, the first one from South Florida. So she she's a, an incredible just powerhouse. I just reached out to her on Instagram. I was like, hi, I'm writing this book about South Florida. You know, this is native land, um, and I would love to get your input and and, you know, I would love your help to reshape this chapter to make it uh, as authentic to your experiences as possible. And she was super, super nice. And because that that gives gives her the opportunity to be like, hey, let me add the flavor that you would like. You would add like the way that you would add croqueta into a context. You would add something that that you had no cultural t uh, reference for. If only it were that simple. Because <laughs> I had to completely redo the chapter. Um, well, I was dead wrong. But that's great, right? Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a that's a uh, a symptom of of going to the source and asking them. Exactly. Let's make this correct. Yeah, and she brought in uh, Raleigh Gilliam, who is a Black Seminole member, and he brought his um, experiences into the book. And there were a couple of other members of the tribe um, who also helped me. So, what t tell take me through some of those changes? Like what what kind of things did they bring in that uh, that that make it feel, uh, that add that texture. Right, so specifically Raleigh, he explained the history of the Black Seminoles. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there were a series of Seminole Wars here in South Florida throughout the 19th century. Um, and even before that, a lot of escaped enslaved people um, coming from Georgia, from Alabama, from other parts, um, came into South Florida. There was actually an underground railroad of sorts that would bring them into this area, and many of them would go over to the Bahamas. But many others stayed with the Seminole tribe, and they were incorporated into the tribe. Um, and so all these things are, are reference points that, that help build this more, this more inclusive, this more um, wide-ranging uh, story when you're trying to tell the, the Miami creation. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know... It's not like, so first of all, Miamians in general 
don't have their story told authentically very often. Usually it's, I don't know, the New Yorker sends someone down here for a weekend and they, they go to South Beach. Every five years or so. Right, right, right. The right, New Yorker right. and, the New, and the New York Times. New York kind of, Times. They, they, they all, yeah, they, they high five on the way out um, in the <laughs> airport. And, um, you know, they'll be like, oh, Miami, they go to they go to Lincoln Road and they go to, you know, South Beach and they don't go anywhere else. And they're like, Miami is all about, you know, sex and drugs and whatever. And then the rest of us are like, what are you talking about? So so generally speaking, Miamians don't have their stories told um, in mass media. But there's so many other communities here in South Florida that like never, ever, ever have their stories told. And I wanted to tell their stories as well as I could. Well, after the break, we'll talk a little bit about, um, maybe you can read a little bit of it to us. But, but for right now, tell us about some of the, the characters in, <laughs> in the Miami creation myth. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, you mentioned Achepe. Uh, Achepe, and right. And the Spanish speakers will, will, um, will notice that it's a euphemism for something else. Right, um, right. But, but I, on, the, on the page, the interesting part of that word is A-C-H-E-P-E. It looks like if yeah. you just saw it out of context... You'd say, "Oh, that's uh, you know a, a word from some Santeria or something yeah, yeah. like that." Nope, nope, uh, nope. Just <laughs> phonetically spelled it out. Yeah. Um, I love that character. Um, so he's kind of like a Loki character. Okay. Um, or a trickster. Um, he's not evil by any means. Um, but he just hates stagnation and he hates boredom. He everything needs to be in flux, and it's actually the driver of the entire narrative because if you don't have conflict you don't have a story he's the billy corbin of uh of the story <laughs> sure sure <laughs> sure you know not he's not on twitter as much but yes well, right <laughs> um but yeah he he plays a very key role throughout the book especially in the second half of the book so the first half of the book you have individual myths right how did the how was the universe created how did the sun and moon come to be Oh boy, that's a chapter. Um, how did people get to uh, Miami? Um, there's a chapter on real estate. There's a, a chapter on undocumented immigrants. Um, and then the second half of the book is called The Cafecito Odyssey, where these two hero twins, Marta and Coquita, who happen to be named after my grandmothers, okay, um, they go around the different kingdoms of Miami, um, and they have to get the constituent parts of Cafecito to to wake everybody up in Miami. Everyone's in a deep malaise, like, um, you know, in Cien Años de Soledad. Um, so I pulled that from there. But Achepe is like, in that sense, he's like Ovid um, in, um, uh, is it Ovid or, or Virgil? Now I'm forgetting. Uh, it might be Virgil <laughs> uh, from Dante's Inferno. So okay. basically, you know, guiding, not that Miami's hell, although it can be, guiding the twins throughout um, the different the different kingdoms and 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 playing more of a constructive role than he usually does. What is Miami's hell? I mean, I, I, would, I would guess it's the Palmetto. But nope, Brickle. It's Brickle. for me. It's Brickle. Which is funny because you live in Brickle. No, no? good God, no, <laughs> no. I right, don't. So so why is Brickle the hell mouth in this? I in your story. My blood pressure sh in this story. It's not. This is just in my life. Oh, in your life. Maybe, but you're giving me ideas for the second book. So okay. thank you. I'm gonna write that down once I get out of here. Um, Everything is copy, man. Yeah, That's how it, it goes. really is. Um, inspiration. Uh, so just personally, um, the second I drive into Brickle, my blood pressure goes through the roof. I mean, it's just like everyone, first of all, everyone, generally speaking, has, I don't know, a, a, a lighter grasp on reality throughout Miami, I, I believe, myself included. But once you go into Brickle, people lose their minds. Um, like everyone driving their cars, everyone on a bicycle or a scooter, every pedestrian is just like, 
they have like a death wish and they want you <laughs> to to fulfill that death wish um and they're just really trying to kill themselves yeah you you really play a brickle in your comedy outside of outside of the book absolutely yes yeah. i have i have launched into screeds against brickle many a time um tell me a little bit about that how did you get into like how did comedy become a thing that became interesting to you as a way to, to express yourself right because because in your your day job you're like a pr guy right 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 um i mean i've written satire since i was you know in high school terrible satire um and i don't know everything i try to write i feel like just organically turns into satire uh, you know against my will um so you know i just embrace it <laughs> a natural snark yeah you have. yes absolutely but you know you know you you touched upon this in the intro i i like try to better Miami in what ways I can. And, and my chosen form is to go clean up the mangroves, mm -hmm. right? Um, so satire, I feel like, you know, satirists have this, um, this reputation of being cynical or whatever, but I feel like in order to write satire, for me at least, I need to be an optimist. So I want Miami to be better. I desperately want it to be better. Um, you have to love the thing that you, yes. that you lampoon. Yeah, right? yeah. And I get comments all the time of like, oh, you're not a real Miami because you're talking trash about Miami. No, I'm bringing up these issues because I love Miami and I want it to be better. Um, get a good relationship. You have to bring up all these things. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, my relationship with Miami. Right. Uh, my sometimes, oftentimes, uh, dysfunctional relationship with Miami. Which, um, which, which also tracks. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... I the best way, you know, you can nag people. You can, like, point, you know, wag your finger at them and be like, do better. Um, or you can make them laugh. Um, and I I find that when I make people laugh, even if they disagree with me, then they're more likely to get into a constructive conversation unless I just go out of my way to be as obtuse as possible, which I do do occasionally. Um, but when it comes to satire in general, you know, it's it's... If I were not an optimist, why would I even bother doing this? Just to vent? No, that I mean, I can just scream into a pillow if I wanted to do that. <laughs> um, tell me a, l a little bit about your growing up, because you obviously had folks who supported you in, in your yeah. life. Where, where, what parts of Miami grew up so I can I can place you? Where'd sure, you go to school? <laughs> sure, let's, let's, we're going to do the Miami thing. Which yeah, is, let's, yeah, uh, where, yeah, where'd you go to high your school? Your Miami credentials. Sure, I'll, yeah. I'll put them on the table. Uh, yeah, born and raised in Miami. Both my parents... We're Cuban refugees. My dad got here when he was 12. He was a member of uh, Pedro Pan. Um, my mother got here when she was 11. Um, I grew up in Coral Gables, um, went to Belen. Again, very Cuban-American, very privileged background right there, um, so you can place me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I grew up thinking Miami was normal. I, th I grew up thinking that... Um, you know, this this was how the world worked, and then then I went to West Point, and boy, was that a culture shock. Yeah. So you you were you had an appointment to to the academy. I did. And and so tell me, what was it like leaving the Miami bubble? It was like running sixty miles an hour into a brick wall. Yeah. Um. It was that was the first place that I felt again being a white Cuban American. You know, you think you you grew up in Miami, you're like, oh, I'm white, I'm the default, and then you leave. And then you realize, oh, this is what systemic oppression feels like. So that window <laughs> into that, um, you know, was extremely eye-opening. How, how did that? How did that manifest itself? In other words, what did? What were some of the things that struck you when you, you know, you you got out of your hometown? Um, well, I was called every, you know, racist slur in the book. Really? Yeah. Yes. Um, and 
you know, there's obvious things that were, you know, obviously, like, I'm, I'm a fish out of water. Like, you know, very simple stuff like um, being put in negative 10 degree weather, being a boy from Miami, and, you know, not knowing anything about how to, you know, operate in that environment. But also, you know, being ignored um, and being, like, told that essentially... I took the place, no, no, not essentially, being literally told I took the place of a, you know, of a cadet who actually merited being there, basically. Yes, you got the uh, the reverse affirmative, affirmative action uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, commentary, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, that uh, I did not belong. So, and I, and I guess that gave you an insight into, like, like Miami's different different background groups who aren't white, you know, white yeah. passing Cuban Americans. Right? I'm glad it happened to me though, because it gave me empathy for that. Um, and I feel like you need to get that sort of shock in order to really understand that when you come back, systemic oppression here in Miami. What do you think you learned then coming back? I mean, obviously I, I, I <laughs> saw that you wrote that, that you, you've never felt as understood as you do yeah. as when you're here. Yeah. So I've, I mean, I've, I've left and I've come back many, many times. Um, you know, I've lived in Boston, lived in D.C. twice, lived in upstate New York, in Sao Paulo, in Buenos Aires. Um, but like I, you know, like I said in the forewarning, Miami is the only place I felt like I didn't need to explain myself to anyone. Um, like I can just be me. Um, and I've never experienced that anywhere else in the world. So that's why I keep coming back. That's why I love that's why I love this place so much, despite, you know, as much as it infuriates me at times. Uh, t- take me through then how that leads into this activism, because ultimately, like we're talking about this, you know, your comedic book, mm-hmm. um, but it, you kind of, the first way you got on people's radar is because you were picking up trash right. in the mangroves. Right. So, so what led to that? In other words, tell me a little bit about what your background was like in your, your connection with nature and your sure. interest in the environment. Well, first of all, I never thought that would get me on NPR. I never <laughs> thought anyone would care that some guy is out in the mangroves picking up trash. Um, so that was a nice surprise that people actually cared. Um, but my love of the mangroves you know, stems from my experiences as a kid. Um, I am a recklessly curious person. Um, and I just want to explore. I want to fill in all the white spaces in my mental map. What is recklessly curious? I'm constantly getting myself hurt (laughs) in all sorts of scenarios, giving my family and my significant other all sorts of like gray hairs because I'm just like, like what? You got to give me an example. Oh oh my God. I've almost broken my neck. I've almost died twice in a cave. Same cave, two different times. Doing what? What were you doing in the cave? Spelunking. Yeah. All right. Um, which is just, you know, a fancy... Cave exploring. Word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Walking around in the dark in a, yeah. in a wet, slippery place. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I've been checked out by too many bull sharks. Um, and just like, I, you know, I go... I spend a lot of time in the Everglades. And I'm just like... <laughs> I am always just like a couple of inches away from death, I feel, um, <laughs> which is nice. You know, you know, we have a good relationship, that, me and death. That leads that leads uh, to more comedy. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to take a little break and then come back to a little bit about the environmentalism that mm-hmm. kind of put you on our radar. Uh, we're speaking with Andrew Otasum. He's an, an environmentalist and satirist and the author of the recent Miami creation myth. We'll be back on Sundial in a minute.
We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Andrew Otasso. Uh, he's an environmentalist and satirist. Um, and we were going to ask him to read sections of his book, but like the best parts, <laughs> like the movie Scarface, always have a curse word in them. So Sorry. you're just going to have to go to the um, to the the Villain Theater in Little Haiti on Saturday night uh, during a comedy show yes. uh, to hear the rest of it. So I, I think where where most folks first heard about you was like in their Instagram feed. Mm-hmm. You're walking through the mangroves picking up trash. Um, why do you think that caught people's attention? Why did I mean, that become a thing? I have no idea why it became a thing. Um, like I said before the break, like I really didn't think anybody would care. I was just out there because I'm a very stubborn person. What took you out there? Yeah, tell me about that. Right, so I fell in love with the mangroves when I was very young. Um, in what way? Like, the, how did you how did how did you become aware of them? I would go exploring, specifically Barracut Preserve on Key Biscayne. Is that is that more or less where that's where you live, or that's where you grew up, or that's where I would spend a lot of time um, uh, growing up and. I just fell in love with the mangroves. It is a magical, difficult place. Um, it is it is an aquatic environment. And so, you know, it's constantly shifting. It's constantly changing, literally minute by minute. It's never the same. And it is serene. It is beautiful. But also, it is filled with trash. I mean, literal tons of trash everywhere you look. It looks like a landfill if, you know, areas haven't been cleared before. And I would go out there seeking some sort of solace. Um, you were going for a quiet, a quiet place exactly, to sit, and exactly. then you would encounter some, yeah, some piece of of, of some, mind. No, mind. no, no, not some. I mean, like literally every place I stepped was trash. Wow. Um, as far as the I could see. And give me an example of some of the things you found, because I think like your Instagram is full of like yeah. here is a like I want to say that there's a quinceañera dress. Yes, I found a quinceañera dress. I mean, you name it, name it, and I found it. I, f- I found like four different mattresses, a VR headset, microwaves, and convection ovens. Um, you could just you could just start like a crazy Eddie's. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy I can Andrews. build my my old my own F one fifty if I wanted to from all the car parts <laughs> I found. Um, but you know, and and you know stuff from all over the place. So there's vinegar that's used as a condiment in the Dominican Republic and Haiti that washes up all the time. I found toothpaste from Cuba. What? Uh, yeah, I found stuff from like Texas and Mexico and it's just it's just literally everything humanity produces winds up in the ocean and that winds up in the mangroves. Which brings me to how I got started. Um, I just got really upset and I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna go out here and I'm gonna start Picking up trash. And how, how long ago was that? When was that? Would you oof, more or less guess? Five or six years ago. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I've been at it, I think I'm at like 128 days that I've been going out there and 22,000, on the dot, 22,000 pounds of trash. Um, how do you, do you weigh? Do oh you yeah, weigh? I've got a, I've got a luggage scale. Oh, do you really? Yeah. So you're able to lift it up your, exactly. so you're, you're going out like one bag at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes many more than one bags, uh, than one bag. Um, my record for one day was a thousand one hundred pounds of trash. Wow. Yeah. But that's also got to feel you. How do you keep from getting defeated when you go out there and there is ah, people ask me that question all the time. Yeah. The point is not to pick up the trash. So I'm, do, I'm making a local difference, right? Um, I'm, you know, improving Bear Cut Preserve or North Point or West Point Mangrove Preserve or all the way down in the Southern Everglades. If, you know, I just picked up the Coastal Prairie Trail. Um, but the point is not to just clean up those areas because I will never in my entire life ever be able to solve the problem of marine trash. 
the point. This has been a long-term campaign of mine, is to bring this to the attention of the grassroots, of people living in South Florida, essentially, saying this is a problem. If you want to fix it, great. You know, don't use straws. Great. Uh, bring a canvas bag to Publix. Good for you. But that doesn't solve it. The thing that solves this is getting involved in policy. That means regulation and legislation. In other words, it's not the like where they say, oh, by saving your money, it's not just don't buy the, the one cup of Starbucks. You've yeah. got to look at a systemic financial 100%. system. 100%. So you're saying look at the larger yes. change. Policies need to change. This is a systemic problem. This is what I tell everyone. Um, you know, I, I speak to middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students and literally anyone who will have me. And I tell them, you have the power. If you have a phone um, and you have connection, you have the power to make systemic change. But it doesn't happen alone. It happens when you collectivize people's attention and then their intention. So make something an electoral issue. And again, it, my particular issue happens to be marine trash. Yours can be equal pay, racial justice, healthcare, public transit, whatever you can make a difference. And again, that goes back to me being an optimist. So yes, I can go into the mangroves and just be infuriated. And yeah, I occasionally am infuriated sure. because I'm like, how did this wind up here? Um, what was the last thing that, that you found that you were like, what what is this doing here? I mean, definitely the VR headset. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what in the world? Who decided to leave that there? Um, Somebody fell off the back of a boat with their headset on, I, I guess. I guess, I mean... Poor guy. I never found him, but I found his headset. And and it feels like you're saying pick your issue, pick your issue of the thing that makes you mad about Miami, mm -hmm. and that's how that's how you you change it. Yeah, yeah. And like I, I I'm not nearly egotistical enough to think that I've changed, um, you know, marine trash in Miami. I've helped elevate it maybe, um, and brought it to the attention of more people. And that's what I've been trying to do. Um, I don't want all of Miami to follow me into the mangroves to pick up trash because it's a sensitive environment and you're going to get hurt. Speaking of dying, I have almost had, I don't know how many heat strokes um, out there um, and, and dehydration, like my world is going black, like I am a couple minutes away from passing out and God knows if I'll wake back up. So I don't want everyone else to go out there. <laughs> don't um, go to the mangroves, but yeah. help change the policies yes. that would keep the trash out of the mangroves. Yes, so that, you know, I don't have to keep doing that. I would like to go onto the mangroves and just enjoy my time rather than just pick up trash. Has there been anything that's given you hope that's uh, as an optimist that's that's kept you yeah going and, and feeling like it's it's going in the in the right direction? Miami's reactions, um, and again, it's it's nonpartisan, which thank God, um, because everything is partisan now. But you know, I've had everything from literal monarchists to actual anarchists come up and tell me like you're doing a great thing. I really support you. Um, so that's fantastic. And that's what we need. It, it's improving Miami is not a partisan issue. It's do you want a better life for yourself and your neighbors and your environment? And I can imagine going through and seeing these things and seeing these issues and, and running up against roadblocks hmm. leads to satire. Yes. Like you, ha it has to come out somewhere. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, if, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, like, I'm, I, I'm the most stubborn person you'll meet. Like, if I come up against a roadblock, the roadblock I came up against was well, you know, policymakers, and it doesn't seem like any of the powers that be care about this issue, so I'm just going to start working on my own. That's what I do. Um, so if, you know, my, my, my instinct is just like, well, what can I personally do in my life around me to make something better? So that's, and, and when it comes to, to politics and policy in Miami, you know, I'm not on any commission or anything, and I don't want to be. Um, so 
what what can I get? What can I do? I can bring to people's attention all these absolutely absurd uh, goings on in our in our politics in South Florida. And uh, tell me about you. You wrote a little bit about going out there. It sounds like you start you gain momentum. In other words, you're like you build momentum by starting with yourself, mm-hmm. and that you get like into a flow, into a oh, state of flow. Yeah. You're in the zone. Yeah. What That's is how it? I get dehydrated? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i go into a flow state like it's it's meditative just picking up trash uh, one piece up to another um and hours will go by and i have to set alarms on my phone to stop and drink water and eat otherwise i'll just keep going and also i get really excited about big pieces of trash like it makes my day like oh my god i can't believe i found this thing Got what what are some of the those big ridiculous things that the you biggest thing that i found was this like 250 300 pound dinghy that had washed ashore an entire boat yeah yeah that wow. was tough to get out luckily it floated so that helped so who helps you who who else is out there with you all sorts of people um so you know i've led i'm, I'm leading a cleanup on monday um with uh, kip liberty academy um you know we're gonna take out a bunch of those kids from middle school and we're gonna show them around. Um, they're great. I have a great relationship um, with uh, Ashley Toussaint, who's a vice principal there. Um, you know, not just schools, but Miami Freedom Project is an organization I've I've brought out there. Surfrider, um, the Girl Scouts. You know, all sorts of different organizations. And but usually it's just like me waking up and be like, oh, I've got like a couple hours. Let me go on to the mangroves and I go pick it up. <laughs> so it's you like seeding these different places, like dropping seeds into all these small, these young people and organizations. Yeah, like absolutely. And start like, building it in their minds. Like I said, more than them, you know, I'm not really interested in, in you know, a middle schooler going on to the mangroves and picking up and, and just leaving with just that experience. Although that's great because a lot of these individuals don't have the ability to get exposed to these environments. What I'm much more interested is showing them, illustrating to them that they can make a difference within their own lives. That's what I really care about. Right. Uh, so you managed to find time to do this. What's your day job? What is your What does your <laughs> life look like when you're not uh, yeah. almost dying uh, from heat stroke among the mangroves? Right. Uh, I work in public relations. I work for an agency called Kivit. I'm an associate director there, and I work on a lot of ESG environmental, social governance issues. And um, yeah, that's what I do. What took you in that direction? And so what, what, was it, <laughs> what was it about the environment that said, that said this, is, this is the thing that requires my energies? Oh, so the direction of my environmental work? Yeah. I don't know. I, like, it's something in, in my life that I felt like I could have a meaningful impact on at the moment. Did you have a, 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 a moment, whether it was a kid, as a kid growing up or even older, where it was like, you found, you know, you're you find some interest in nature, and then you see it clash with humans in this way that that made such a an impact to you. All the time. Um, I mean, I got into a, f- I mean, I see it all the time, uh, especially like out in Bearcut, for example, just boaters and beachgoers. Just le- you've seen the videos, you know. Louis Aguirre um, at Channel Ten does a great job of of uh, disseminating those on social media of, you know, jet skiers or whomever just leaving their trash all over the place. Um, and so, yeah, I'm all about kicking people out of places they shouldn't be. Um, and so I'll happily do that. Um, Where does that come from? Have you learned anything from seeing that about what is the essential thing that needs to take place for people to, like, not do that? There will always be bad actors, yeah. right? Um, but... 
it doesn't matter what system you put into place. There will always be people that suck. Uh, that's just the <laughs> yeah. that's just reality. But that's not what interests me. Again, it's systems. It is going as far upstream as possible as you can to solve a problem at its root, um, and implementing policy and a culture that cares about the environment. Um, so educating people about how important it is um, to you know. It's, and again, it's not individuals littering. The vast majority of the trash that winds up in the mangroves and in the ocean does not come from beachgoers or from fishermen or boaters or whatever. It comes from the street. So it accumulates on the side of the street. Um, we don't have good waste management, uh, waste disposal systems here in South Florida in many, many neighborhoods. Um, and when it rains, all that trash goes into the gutter and that goes right into the bay and then I find it. And then others people find it, you know, doing their cleanups. And that's a fraction of the trash that's out there. The vast majority of it is in the sea bottom, seabed bottom. So whenever, you know, most trash doesn't float. It just, you know, hangs out there. And whenever there's a big storm, you know, you see just tons of trash come ashore and people just lose their minds. They're like, oh my God, I didn't know we had all this trash. And I think to myself, you have no idea what's out there. Um, you know, I free dive. I open ocean swim, and I see it just littering the ocean floor. And it's these absurdities that have led to your uh, recent work, which is your your comedic book. We're going to take a little break, and then we've actually found a section that we can read. Wow. Our, our producer, Elisa Vaina, has found a section that we can <laughs> actually read. Wow. Uh, this is Andrew Otasso, who's an environmentalist and a satirist, and his recent book is The Miami Creation Myth. We'll be back with a section of it in a minute on Sundown. Welcome back to Sundial. This is Carlos Frias. I know you're excited to hear about this section that is curse word free from our guest today, <laughs> Andrew Otasso, who's an environmentalist and a Miami satirist. Uh, his recent work is the Miami creation myth. Uh, if you've missed any part of this conversation, uh, all of our shows are on our podcast. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. All right, uh, I, Andrew, introduce this section that you're going to read for us uh, sure. from the Miami creation myth. This is the first chapter. Um, this is a section of the first chapter. This is after Pachango wakes up on his divine ping pong pong. Um, and his mother has chased him out of one universe right, so with her chancleta. On the sun. He turned on the sun and his mother busts through the celestial door of the universe and says, you know, turn off that light. I can't, you know, I don't own the, electric, the electrical company. So he has to turn off the sun, grab his ping pong pong, move to a different universe, and start it all over again. Right. Pachangu, uh, Pachangu is our Zeus. Right, for, right. For, uh, yes. And the Miami creation. Right, or Odin or whatever. Or Odin, sure. Um, and so he, you know, creates the sun. It's incredible. And he, you know, he's got his ramen coke and he's got his cigar. And from the smoke of the cigar, his three first children arrive, you know, um, Maris Lacy, Suciel, and Yamilet. And so this is the, port, the portion of the book where basically the different children claim their own kingdoms, their own realms. Okay. Yep. All right, so I'll get started. Pachango sat his children on the divine ping-pang-pung and explained how he wished to fill the universe with diverse and beautiful wonders. Yamilet, Marislesis, and Yusiel grew very excited and begged their father to allow them to assist in this great endeavor. Pachango smiled at their enthusiasm and acquiesced. He divided the universe into three great realms, granting one to each of the siblings to create and rule as they wished. Yamilet, being the most spirited and exuberant of the three, rose high above her family and claimed the sky as her own. She shook her head in disapproval as she looked about, about the drabness of her new domain. 
Using a mattress feather from the divine Bing Bang Bung, she painted the sky a magnific magnificent shade of bright blue. She then blew upon an ice cube from Pachango's rum and coke, forming the clouds, while her breath became the wind. Satisfied with her work, Yamilet descended back onto the divine Bing Bang Bung to the praise of Pachango, Uciel, and Marislesis. Uciel then took another ice cube from his father's glass. He pressed it tightly in both hands, melting it and forming the great eastern ocean. The sweat of his exertion mixed with the water, turning it salty. Marislesis, being more patient than her hurried brother, allowed a third ice cube to melt in the sun. This created the freshwater expanse to our west we call the Everglades. She also used un hilo from the divine Bing Bang Bung to weave the mangroves, sawgrass, and cypress that populated that massive, slow-moving river. Satisfied, the three siblings reclined on the divine Bing Bang Bung and congratulated each other on their work. Unbeknownst to Bachango, a stray puff of smoke from his cigar had coalesced to form a new, invisible entity whose machinations would forever mar the harmony that existed at the beginning of the universe. His name was Achepe, the god of chisme. Achepe, though not categorically opposed to order, hated stagnation, and above all, boredom. He therefore never projected a concrete physical representation of himself like his brother and sisters, but preferred to remain a nebulous cloud that could instantly travel to all corners of the world to record secrets and spread half-truths. The only way to discern his presence was by the strong smell of tobacco that always followed him. That was Andrew Otasso reading from his new book, The Miami Creation Myth. So I have to ask you about some of your inspirations. Who are some of the folks that, that you read, you know, that you've read in your life or you continue to read that got you interested in comedy and satire? Um, Douglas Adams, uh, first and foremost, he wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. And the whole series. And he is just wacky. Um, his, his narrative just careens from tangent to tangent and is laugh out out loud funny to me it is like i've read his collected works i'm not even kidding 15 16 17 times and every time it's hilarious um and then you have like your classical satirist so jonathan swift is another one um that he's just he's so good um i just absolutely love him I might Miami is ripe for for satire. I mean, uh, I mean, you can't help Carl Hyacin, uh, yeah. uh, Dave Barry. Absolutely, you know. like you can't you can't live here and not just be awestruck by the absurdity of South Florida everywhere you look. So it's just like you know, I'm a fish in the ocean. Right. Yeah. I think I think I remember Carl Hyacin saying that uh, to write to write satire about. Florida, all you need is a subscription to the Miami Herald. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And and is it, do you find, where do you find some of that inspiration? Like when, do you just find yourself in traffic and you keep a notebook? Yeah. Handy or <laughs> yeah. You know, I do write about, you know, the daily uh, grind that is living in South Florida, um, you know, traffic, rent, um, lack of public transit. Um, but then, you know, I feel like my, I prefer to write about systemic issues. Hmm. Um, I prefer to write. You know, you can call it corruption, but it's just like the the political culture that we have in South Florida and how, you know, it is, it is this wonderful mix of, you know, old school Latin American, you know, Gaudioism, if that's a word, um, and, you know, mixed with, you know, before the Latinos got here to South Florida, it was 
Southern backwater, you know, a, a vacation town. So that's in the mix. Um, right, like South Florida has always kind of been the the nexus of uh, of, of politics. Yeah, uh, mixing with crazy. Right, uh, with right. Crazy. We're like the capital yeah. of Medicare fraud, right. um, and like every other fraud. So we're number one in that. Let me ask you. Talk to me a little bit about the some of the the folks that that bring you some joy. So you mentioned your two grandmothers yeah. are the the the. Cafecito characters. Yeah, yeah, Martin and Cuquita. So tell me about them. Some of the some of the folks in your family who inspired you like that. Um, all sorts of people inspired me. So I actually sat down with my parents, and I would just like pepper them with like, how do you say you know X Y or Z? How do you you know what's a good Cuban curse word for this or that? Or oh, the they thing? were like consultants. Oh, absolutely. Like, oh, very that's much funny. So. Very tell me about so. some of the stuff that they brought to the table. Uh, I don't think I can say the majority of it on the radio, <laughs> but in general, um, without saying the words. So okay, okay. So one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite Cuban like dichos or saying uh-huh. is "Volocomo Matias Perez." Volocomo Matias Perez. Yeah. So he flew some, like Matias. Exactly. Perez. So if someone just leaves and you never see them again. That's, you know, that's the applicable situation in which you would say this. And so the origin of this is because in the 19th century, there was a Portuguese aeronaut or, you know, someone who had a hot air balloon. And he decided it was, he lived in Cuba at the time. And he thought it was a great idea to just launch a hot air balloon himself in the canopy um, from the middle of the, uh, from the middle of an ocean on a very skinny island, and he went up into the clouds, and literally nobody ever saw him again. Wow! So like uh, the the first Elon Musk then. <laughs> well, he's <laughs> still around. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah, one could hope. Um, but um, yeah, and he... so like things like that, like your folks, you, they they had those little sayings yes, that they helped pepper. Absolutely, in. and that's like everywhere. That's all over the book. I I put so many Easter eggs throughout and you know what brings me joy as a writer is imagining the reader in the moment um like i really want them to be like no no there's no way that's on purpose and then they the realization of like oh my god it is on purpose right and that and that's the funny thing is that woven into the the satire is funny because it's true mm-hmm. right the, the parts of it so tell me about some other parts that that are not like Cuban American stuff that you grew up in that that even you discovered as you were writing like you were section you had the you had the folks who were who had a Native American background mm-hmm. who added texture to that. Right. What were some of the things that you learned just in the creation of it yourself? Right. So it you know there were other many many other communities that you know or individuals um, that were members of other communities that I consulted with throughout the book. And one of the most important chapters in my mind was on undocumented immigrants. Um, so actually, my mother was undocumented. She she spent seven years. Um, she overstayed her visa in the United States, so she spent seven years in this country without um, without papers. But I didn't have that firsthand experience, right? What so, did, What did you learn from your from your mom's example to growing up in a household where where she didn't have where she didn't have papers? How did that empathy, How did that affect your lives? Empathy. Yeah. Um, I feel like very often uh, what occurs is that an immigrant group will get to the United States. And their philosophy, as soon as they get here, turns once they get the residency, it turns into close the door behind me. We're full, um, and and a lot of that empathy drops for even you know individuals from their country of origin that get here um, subsequently. So she taught she taught me empathize with those who are seeking a better life because that's how we got here. That's why we're here. That's why I am writing about Miami and not about Camaway or Havana. Um, so. But again, I didn't grow up with that experience. So, you know, I reached out to some friends of mine who had, and they helped me um, import that experience into the book. Right. 
Uh, talk to me about how your how your family has responded to to the book so far. I mean, you know, my parents have been incredible. They have to have had a sense of humor. Yes. I mean, my mother's a very proper woman. Um, and there's a lot in this book that is not proper. Um, so God there's, bless her. There is one creation myth within it. That is, <laughs> ah, yeah, chapter yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, we won't go into that. No. You'll find out if you come to, on Saturday, though. Yeah, exactly. We encourage um, you to. If you're interested, definitely get yeah, out there Saturday. Yeah. Here to first person. Um, like, they don't get it. They don't get it. Like, my dad and my mom worked their entire lives, um, you know, just grinding away. What did your folks do? So my dad owned a uh, an environmental construction company. Um, okay. So you know it's a small business that you know he basically built from the ground up, and he's had it for decades. But like ever since he got to this country at 13 years old, like he he told me stories of like he he immediately started working in a car shop, and they the guy had him sanding down cars by hand because he didn't want to waste electricity on an electric sander. So my dad was sanding this car, the side of this car, by hand, and he looked back, and there was a streak of red. So that sandpaper had just messed up his hand, and all that was blood. Wow. And so the guy saw, you know, my dad's hand. He's like, okay, I'll take care of that for you. Grabs his hands and dumps them into a bucket of paint thinner. And your dad's a little, is basically a boy. He's 13 years old. Yeah, and so my dad almost passes out. And to this day, he doesn't have feeling in his hands as a result because of that experience. So that's what he grew up with. Um, and, and these are examples of, again, it's it's kind of that Im- it's that immigrant experience where, absolutely. You're, where you're trying to hustle and you're trying to make it in a place that's that's foreign. And a- absolutely, absolutely. So um, like here are your parents and, and uh, to have this very serious background. And, and Yeah, so like meanwhile, I'm writing this stuff. So like <laughs> for, as a second, as a first generation American, I feel like this is universal among immigrants. Just like, your parents are like, what are you doing? What are, like I have worked, I have, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an engineer. And those are like the three things every immigrant parents wants you to be. But, you know, I go off and do wild things throughout my life, uh, throughout my career. I worked for a Mexican president. I worked at the U.S. State Department. I worked at the Harvard Business School. I work, I worked in policy in D.C. My parents don't get it. Like, how can you, you like know. After doing all that. Yeah, I'm just, I'm gonna write comedy. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna write this crazy book, and but they've been so supportive, and they've been so nice, and like it's really endearing. It's something that I it's 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 helped me connect with them more because I I literally had a running tally of just crazy things that they would talk to me about that I would put on my phone and then I would then inject that into the book wherever I could. I I read that well, one of the things that you love most is not necessarily dining out but eating at home. Some Absolutely. meal that that your mom or your abuela has made. My mother, yeah, yeah. All right, so, and and that uh, like three of your three of your favorite things are mame, aguacate, and mango. Absolutely. So let's play a little kiss, Mary kill. Oh, really? Okay, that's kiss, one Mary, version of it. Kiss, kiss Mary, Mary kill. kill. That's the radio version that we're doing. Oh, uh, I see. So kiss, Mary kill. Aguacate. Mame, aguacate, mango. Which one are you kissing? In other words, you'll have your short fling. Which one are you marrying? Which are you staking, uh, keeping around? And which uh-huh. one are you eliminating? This is tough. Well, mango is my favorite fruit, so I'm gonna have to marry the mango. You're marrying the mango, okay? Absolutely. Um, this is tough, man. There's gonna, I'm gonna get so much hate for this. Um, so I guess I'm gonna have to kill my may. You have to kill my may. Yeah. So yeah, you're it's gonna, a very strong. So you're gonna flavor. kiss aguacate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love my may. But 
it's it's a very it's a strong flavor it's a very strong you can't you if you're gonna have a batido you have to have just the batido my mate you can't put anything else in there right so you know that's that's coming on a little too strong for me so I can't have my fling with mommy. All right. So reluctantly, yeah. Well, that that's going to be your kiss, Mary kill. Yeah. So in the last minute, uh, we've we've both talked about folks coming in from the outside and under- understanding the real Miami. What do you f- hope that folks will take away uh, from your satire to understand about the real Miami? Well, this is not for people. This is not for non-Miamians. Um, I what I want this book to accomplish is for Miamians from different communities to see themselves authentically portrayed. That is my goal. If I can do that, I'll be happy. Obviously, if this is a bestseller, fantastic. That would be hilarious. Um, I, have, <laughs> you know, I would laugh really hard. Um, but I just want this to be. I want it to be okay for Miamians more than anything else. Andrew Otaso is an environmentalist and a satirist, and he's written the book "The Miami Creation Myth." You can buy it online, or you can also, and you can also see him at his launch party at the Villain Theater in Little Haiti this Saturday. Uh, follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew O T A Z O Andrew Otaso. Um, Andrew, thank you for coming in. It's been my pleasure. And that's sundial for Tuesday, February twenty eighth. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our Director of Live Programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's Engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at GoBalo.com. Again, you can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, the Miami Film Festival starts this week. We'll hear about one of the local films featured. Uh, It's an homage to South Florida's immigrant community filmed at the now-closed Opalaka Flea Market. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.